Watermark Golf Media. Well, if you have a drive in work this morning on Christmas Eve, we feel for you. Here's a quick look at traffic and weather. There's a fat guy in a red suit has got a sleigh pulled over on the right-hand side of I-55, just north of the I-20 interchange. Looks like he's changing the flat hoof on a reindeer, so move over, give him plenty of room. You don't want to end up on his naughty list. Your global warming forecast for the day is brought to you by Styrofoam. Who wants to remind you that if Starbucks used Styrofoam cups, you wouldn't have to use a cardboard sleeve to keep from burning your fingers. It's 72 downtown, 72 at the reservoir. Heck, it's 72 everywhere. Now, here's a two-for-two from the Black Crows. Someone should be paying you to listen to this podcast. It's the Lip Outs Podcast with your host, golf course architect, author, and former looper for the llama, Nathan Crace. And now, from deep within the recesses of the basement beneath the studio at Watermark Golf Media, the man of the hour, the tower of power, too sweet to be sour, make you say, like Jerry Clower. Ladies and gentlemen, Nathan Crace. This is the Live Outs Podcast, and we thank you again for joining us once more. This will be our last podcast of the year. I think everybody will be glad to see 2020 behind them. Uh, my co-host, Landon, is not with us. He's uh, on assignment, we'll say, but his schedule had a conflict, and he couldn't be here today. In fact, as we record this, we are... 10 days out from Christmas. So we really didn't want to get into any, you know, talking about the news and headlines and things, but it's 2020. So who knows what might change between now and and, uh, Christmas Eve when this actually posts. So we're going to go ahead and go straight to our guest, kind of in the old format of the podcast that we did before we restarted things this year. This is Dave Wilbur. And most people who, uh, if you're in the golf business and you're anywhere near Twitter, you know who Dave is. Dave is a 28-year consultant and owner of Wilbur Turf and Soul Services in Northern California, Colorado, and Asia. Before that, he was a golf course superintendent. Uh, lately, he has become sort of the advocate for mental wellness in the golf industry, especially with golf course superintendents. And that's the focus of the episode today. You know, we know 2020 has been tough for a lot of people, not just with the pandemic, but with the holidays coming around. And usually a lot of people have issues with the holidays. And so I thought it would be good to have Dave to come on, talk about his personal experience, the people that he helps, and also to maybe give some tips and, and to people who might be having some issues and, and maybe feel a little overwhelmed by the pandemic. So welcome to the podcast, Dave Wilbur. Hey, Dave. Hey, Nathan. How's it going? Doing great. I, I appreciate it. Hey, where um, where in the world are you today? <laughs> Currently, at this moment, I am in Littleton, Colorado, which is a southern suburb of Denver. Um, it's a beautiful day here, blue skies and snow on the ground. So, uh, uh, for me, this is this is the weather that I love. So, this is what December feels like in Colorado. No, that's that's great. I you know I grew up in Indiana yeah. and. We, I grew up in Southern Indiana, right across the river from Louisville, Kentucky. So, you know, now I live in Mississippi and people say, oh, Indiana snow, but not necessarily. Sometimes it would be January, February, and sometimes we would go a winter right. without snow. So I always thought it would be great to live out there in the Rockies. Well, I think the thing that a lot of people don't, you know, if you haven't spent time in this area, I mean, we get uh, more than 300 days of sunshine a year here. So you know, typically with these snows, it'll be, it'll, you know, it'll snow a fair amount. And then for the next few days, it'll be you know, beautiful, bright, sunny bluebird day. Right. So I love that about, I love that about Colorado. I really do. No, it's, it's great. If they could get it to not snow on the roads, it'd be even better if we could work, if we could figure that out. Yeah. That well, that's great. the thing. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, and Denver's become a popular place for a lot of people from around the country to come, come to, and a lot of them haven't driven in the snow before. And it's pretty easy to tell. You know, I grew <laughs> right. up in it, so I don't, you know, I, I grew up in the mountains, uh, near, 
um, winter park ski resort, you know, so it was, uh, you know, we really got snow up there. Uh, Denver seems like the banana belt compared to that, but it's still funny to see people white knuckling it when they, when they've never seen how it happens here. I, I can imagine. I, like I said, I live in Mississippi now. I went to school in Mississippi state. So I've been in the deep South for ugh, 30 years and forever. <laughs> yeah. Forever. It feels like. And so when you, right. when you do, we do get the occasional freak snowstorm. And, and a lot of times it's strange. You'll get this weird band of snow and you'll get three or four inches of snow and it's gone by the next afternoon. But you can tell right. the people who aren't used to it because, you know, they're dry, they're very timid or either that or they, because they have a four wheel drive truck, they just assume they can go anywhere. And, and those are the ones that usually end up on the, on <laughs> the side the of the road. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't matter, you know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, snow, ice, who cares? Now, that, that is great. I, I do, my kids enjoy the, especially when they were younger, the occasional freak snowstorm that we would have. Not so much sure. about the ice, but, you know, it was always fun to go build a little two-foot-tall snowman who might make it 24 oh, yeah, hours. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. I get it. I totally get it. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about your background. You grew up there in the area, but I'm always curious guess because the, the podcast is not necessarily about golf course architecture or really even about golf right. but it is about people in and around the game and so I'm always curious how people came to be golfers or how they were first introduced to the game how they met the game sure and, and in your situation not only golf but turf grass well I my situation is pretty easy um Nathan I uh I grew up in a farm and ranch and and ski resort kind of community in the mountains of Colorado and uh you know, pretty, I think my hometown was about 2000 people. You know, my high school was 200, um, pretty small place. And, uh, uh, I, I knew that I wasn't going to play cowboy or farmer rancher, you know, for a living. I just kind of knew that, uh, even though my family was involved with some, you know, with some cattle operations and some horses and all that sort of thing, it just wasn't my, wasn't my game, but I still loved agriculture and I come from a three generation you know, agricultural family. My grandfather grew citrus in Southern California. Uh, my uncles and my cousins grow citrus in Arizona. And, you know, you know, we've always, we've always been ag oriented people. I just didn't want to necessarily do it the same old way. So there was a golf course being built near my home, Pole Creek Golf Club in, uh, in Winter Park, Colorado. And I knew about the golf course and I, uh, basically the golf course superintendent who was not only the growing superintendent, construction superintendent, the whole thing, but just, you know, he, the, the almost one man band put a thing up at our high school, uh, like on a bulletin. Board. And I called him and said, I, I need a summer job. And I was just before I was turning 16. I didn't know anything about golf. I didn't know anything about turf grass. I just knew that I wanted to work outside and that it sounded interesting and that it was close to where I live. And, I absolutely fell in love with it. I worked three summers there uh, during high school, and uh, Mike Kozak, the golf course superintendent there, uh, became a real mentor and a you know almost an uncle to me. And besides my parents, I think he was the most influential older person, you know, that I'd kind of been around. <laughs> and I say older, I mean he turned thirty the first summer that I worked for. <laughs> right, right. So you know, sixteen, I guess that's an old person. Right, he felt aging um, at that age. Yeah, I had a great time there. And Mike said to me one day, hey, you know, you can get an education in this. You can go to Colorado State and study turf grass. He asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, well, I just want to see the world. And he said, well, there's golf everywhere you could go. You know, <laughs> you can keep greens anywhere that you can throw a dart and hit a map or, you know, at a globe or a map or whatever. And that just really appealed to me. So the whole thing worked out for me. Uh, I went on to to go to school, get, you know, get my degree in agronomy, turf, you know, turf grass science and, uh, worked every chance I got at, uh, uh, at any golf course that I could. I did some internship work in Arizona with Wadsworth golf construction. And, uh, pretty early on, I ended up getting a superintendent's job in the Denver area. So as it happens with a lot of people in our business, Nathan, and, you know, things happen when you're kind of young. <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't very, uh, you know, I wasn't very ready looking back, uh, you know, to have 27 holes and a staff where everybody was older than me and, right. and uh, <laughs> all that stuff. But I did it anyway. You know, I just took it on. 
I spent seven years as a golf course superintendent. Uh, part of that in in Colorado, and then I moved to Northern California, just north of Sacramento, and uh, did a renovation on a golf uh, on a Billy Bell golf course there. Fell in love with Northern California. Ended up spending 25 years in Northern California. Uh, so much golf, you know, through the San Francisco area, Monterey, of course, and um, you know, just a fantastic place to live. And I needed something different. Um, when we finished that renovation, I had I had started to do some advising and some agronomic advising. One of the things that we were doing, Nathan, is we were doing no chemical program. What what we would say organic turf grass uh, it was the perfect place to do it. The weather was right. The place was right. And uh, I really wanted to figure that out. I wanted to go back to my roots a little bit of sustainable agriculture. And uh, basically that experience let me essentially hang a shingle as a consultant. And uh, and that's what I did. I stepped out on my own, uh, became an advisor and, and uh, started working with golf course superintendents, you know, any way that they would hire me to, uh, to just help them with their programs and be an advocate for them and, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, it turned out to be a great, I mean, it has turned out to be a great, great career for me. I mean, looking back, I wouldn't change a thing. I really wouldn't. I still miss the active part of growing grass. And I still miss keeping greens per se, but I get my hands in it every once in a while and it works out. <laughs> so that's my story. It's a pretty easy story, actually. No, it, it actually, I mean, you could probably nine out of 10 people that you talk to who are in the golf business have something similar where they kind of fell into it at a young age, whether introduced by a, a, a parent or an uncle or an aunt or somebody who played the game or somebody who worked in it, or they just kind of stumbled yeah. into it and realized that they loved it. And once it's in your blood, it's really hard to get it out, it, it, even working and not just playing well, it, but, I, but working in it. I tell it. people that, you know, I didn't, I didn't come to it for the golf. I didn't know that much about golf. I, I ended up picking up golf and and I, you know, I love it. I've never been super great at it, but I can hit it, you know. Uh, but that's not that's not how I came to it. And you know, later and later as a golf course superintendent, I had a lot of young people coming to me who were golfers, who were, you know, on a golf team or something like that, looking for a summer job. And they were keen to hit the ball. You know, they knew what they were getting into. Um, right. At sixteen, I didn't know the difference between a green tee and a fairway. So <laughs> I've had this discussion with Darren Davis and, and other people in the past. I, I do think a superintendent who plays golf, and they don't have to be a great golfer, but they play golf and they take the time to go play, especially their own golf course. I, I think it makes them a better superintendent because they see the things that the golfers see that sometimes you just, you kind of get used to seeing it all the time and maybe you don't realize it. Now that said, that it's a fine balancing act because if you play too much, then everybody wants to know, well, why is the superintendent always well, out sure. there playing golf? <laughs> Sure. Well, and I think too, Nathan, it's incredibly hard to play your own place. You know, if you're, if your heart's really in, into the art of greenkeeping, um, for me anyway, it was very hard to play my own golf course. What I loved was getting out to other places and seeing, seeing what other people were doing, seeing, seeing new things. Sure. And, uh, you know, my place, I just couldn't, I couldn't look past all the work that we had to get done or the things that, right. you know, that we had to do. And so it didn't make for enjoyable golf. I, I often advise golf course superintendents, go somewhere else and play. Right. You know? <laughs> I, yeah. I actually uh, knew a golf professional and he had a twin brother and I knew both of them and, and his twin brother, he was a member at his brother's club and he okay. eventually had to grow a mustache because he said he got tired of going out and playing and he'd be out there playing and somebody would yell, Hey pro, tell that group up there to speed up, you know, because right. they thought it was, they thought yeah. it was his brother. So, well, and it's funny, I've had a, I've had a few friends in the business. So, I mean, you, you hear stories like this and you think, well, this, that couldn't be true. But, but I, I've met a few, you know, really talented turf grass people who, who saw a few of them were, uh, their dad might've been a golf pro, you know, at a club or a course somewhere. And they grew up with a club in their hands and it could hit the ball really well. And, uh, it's funny how members and golfers act towards that because somebody with some real natural talent, it's like, wow, you must play too much golf. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, uh, I remember a superintendent telling me that he, he played golf during an interview once and he was, um, he was happy to be out golfing. 
and he was hitting the ball real good. And then he realized he was about to beat all those guys and he started to, <laughs> he, he started to dump it a little bit just to make sure, you know, just to miss a few putts and, you know, hit one right just to make sure that they didn't think that he was, you know, going to spend all his time golfing. I have a very similar story at golf professional back when I was working as an, as an assistant golf pro and this guy could really play. I mean, he could go shoot 65 as easily as he could go out and shoot 72. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And I asked him one time, why do you go out and you shoot 65 sometimes and you turn around and shoot 75? Why aren't you playing more tournaments? And then he said, well, look, it's a very fine balancing act. What you have to do is you shoot yeah. for every 70, every 65 that I shoot, I have to make shoot, sure I shoot up 74 every once in a while. Right. Because if you're playing, <laughs> if you play too well, they think you're playing all the time. If you're not playing well enough, then they think they need, yeah. a, they need a new pro. So it is a lot of, uh, right. a lot of balancing going on for superintendents and golf professionals. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really true. So, what uh, yes. earlier you mentioned the organic golf course, you know, and that yeah. would have been just for frame of reference. So we're talking late eighties, early nineties at that time. Yeah, early nineties. Nineteen ninety is when I went to Northern California, okay. and the area that I was in was um, a, a lot of fruit trees, a lot of grapes, a lot, you know, just kind of above the fog and below the snow in the foothills, uh, huh. north of Sacramento. And it was a, it was weather-wise a fantastic place to grow grass. And, um, the soils on this particular golf course were really good. And I just thought, you know, this is the perfect opportunity to do something different. And so we started to do things like make our own compost and our own compost tea, uh, you, you know, those sustainable egg kind of things, which weren't all that commonplace, uh, in golf course agronomy back then. It's certainly a lot more mainstream now. Oh, absolutely. Uh, part of it was we didn't have we didn't have a huge budget there, and the money that I wanted to spend was going to be spent on uh, renovation, getting some equipment together. I wanted to pay my guys um, a stronger wage, and there just wasn't you know it was easy to maybe just look past some fertilizer and chemical things and make you know do things a little bit different. I think the other thing is is being near being near very very large agriculture. Uh, sourcing materials was really easy. So it was, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't always available through the common turf grass uh, sales mm-hmm. lines, but there was so much agriculture there and I can speak that language. So, you know, I was able to, uh, you know, get some fertilizer blends done and uh, that kind of thing for very little money. And I wasn't necessarily very popular with the salespeople. <laughs> But we did we did the right thing, and I think that's part of sustainability. You know, is doing the right thing, not just saying, "Hey, we're not doing chemicals," but also, uh, have I done everything I can do here to be profitable and to take care of things? It's a little harder to measure at a private club, but still, you know, we had a budget. We wanted to stick to it. Sure. No, and. I mean, nineteen ninety—that's got to be the cutting edge of that approach to golf course maintenance. Uh, and it, you know, before, like you said, before it really caught on, I mean that you, you had to have been on the cutting edge at that point. Oh yeah. I was, I was way out by myself <laughs> and you know, electronic communications were just getting going. There was a small bulletin board service that some superintendents, um, had put together. Uh, it was called turf bite. And so we would communicate on turf bite and those guys would, I would say some of the stuff I was doing and those guys would, they would just tease me mercilessly. <laughs> like a, my Yule Gibbons approach to growing grass, you know, it's like, you know, what are you doing today, Dave, grinding up some almonds and putting them in the spray tank? You know, what's your, what's your deal? And, uh, and of course I would, you know, I'd play along with that and, uh, tell those guys, you know, things like my pre-emergent was, you know, you know, lemonade right. and, uh, <laughs> Tofu. <laughs> but I was pretty serious about, uh, about composting and and that's where it all got kind of started for me is we started building they were hauling the clippings from from the greens you know putting them in the dumpster and i couldn't you know i couldn't live by that right 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 so no we started to pile those and then we started to mix it with some other you know with some oak leaves and some other materials that were around and we built a really really nice compost and that got a lot of things going for me that began a big thinking uh, change for me. Um, and then we would take that compost and we would soak it and make tea. 
And I, I got to tell you, I, I had some failures. <laughs> I didn't kill any grass, really, but I had some things, you know, not work the way I thought they would. Sure. I also had some happy accidents, if you will, to borrow from Bob Ross, where it's like, oh, that was pretty good. <laughs> Maybe we'll do that again, even though it was a mistake. <laughs> so, yeah, it was definitely the cutting edge. I was, I was feeling very much by myself. You know, granola management, John Scott was working for the Nicholas organization at the time. Yep. I would say Dave and his granola. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so that's what, 30 years ago now. I mean, yeah, it's 2020. Yeah. So that, that's 30 years ago, as hard as that is to believe. Uh, yeah, so un- unreal. You, I know. It's like yesterday. <laughs> well, so you, yeah. you get out of the, the full-time superintendent business, kind of become a consultant, and uh, you're working with people. And I mean, I saw somewhere you've played golf on all seven continents. You've worked on on six yeah. with untold number of people and projects around the world. But through all of that, you kind yeah. of kind of went from the advocate for sustainability. And somewhere along the road, you became, within, especially within the, within the turf world, kind of this advocate for mental wellness, which is really the focus of the episode. And so I thought sure. maybe you could share just, sure. you know, how did that how did that come about, maybe a little of your personal story, and how you've been able to reach out to others in the industry? Well, I, and it, it is an intensely personal story, and I really don't mind telling it, Nathan. And, uh, and I'm certainly not telling it to you uh, first of all, we don't want to bum anybody out when they're when they're listening to this, and right. I, and I'm not telling the story to put any big light on me, but I did notice, and and I even started to see this early on as a consultant. You know, I would come for the typical visit, right? I'm going to be there for the day, kind of thing, and yeah, we you know get with the golf course superintendent, and we would dive right in. You know, we're going to go through the agronomy, right? We're going to We're going to dig into his program, look at soil tests, do everything that we got to do. And at some places that was a day, you know, that was, that was a day at some places. Um, the conversation would very quickly switch, uh, where the superintendent and we, and I always had this rule that with golf course superintendents that what, what they said to me stayed with me, you know? Right. Right. So if they griped about a boss, a golf pro, an employee or whatever, you know, that wasn't going to get in my report. Right. <laughs> um, you know, that kind of stuff. It was, the, that was the personal stuff. And I had some superintendents at some very, you know, impressive places, right. Some people of, of note of merit, if you will, uh, put their feet on the desk and start to talk to me about their issues, their personal issues. You know, uh, a lot of it had to do with getting along at work, getting along with, you know, staff getting along with uh other folks at the golf course or at the club a lot of it had to do with family stuff and those conversations were they were intense they were just as intense as the you know as the agronomy conversations and i started to see that that golf course superintendents really didn't have you know it's kind of a lonely gig sometimes nathan sure you know you're you're sort of hanging at the top and there's a lot of pressure and uh and I saw that pressure and I saw that pressure melt some people and I saw people thrive in the, in pressure. Everybody has a different response to that. Um, kind of going back to me, I started, uh, my first year in college, I had what a lot of people would consider to be today kind of a depressive episode. Uh, not entirely sure what all went down with that, but, but I had, you know, some really dark stuff going on with me. And I, and it was one of those things where I kind of couldn't pull myself out of the, uh, out of the spin. Right. I was, I was cranking with classes. I was, uh, you know, in a new environment, in a new place, new people, all that sort of thing. And for a kid from small town, Colorado, you know, it was just kind of breaking me up happens to a lot of people in their first year in school. Sure. And I was able to see a psychologist and, you know, get some help. And back then, you know, in the 1980s, nobody was talking about ADD, ADHD. There wasn't a lot of conversation about depression. Uh, you know, Prozac really wasn't a thing, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Right. And, uh, but I did, I did realize that I had to learn some stuff about myself. And, uh, so through the years I had, I had battled depression and anxiety. i I started having some anxiety attacks when the pressure was on. I never talked to anybody about it. I never, 
Yeah, I never spoke much about it. Um, the first time it happened to me, I thought I was having a heart attack. You know, I went to the doctor and they said, well, you know, your heart's good, <laughs> right? Just ease up a little bit, big guy. Well, I didn't know about easing up. That just wasn't in my credo. And, uh, and I saw that in my fellow golf course superintendents. And so I would talk to them very upfront about my, you know, my situation. And, uh, um, I've dealt with that all of my life and sometimes it's been pretty bad. And, uh, I had a suicide attempt about 10 years ago, less than 10 years ago, uh, when things really spun out of control, out of control in my life with <clears throat> the loss of a parent where I just couldn't get my, my feet underneath. me, And, uh, I was very public about that situation. And I started getting calls from superintendents, assistant superintendents who were telling me very similar stories. I mean, dark stuff. I'm like, well, I'm not a psychologist. You know, I'm not a therapist, right? I'm an agronomist. I mean, thanks for telling me that, but I think you better see a therapist. (laughs) But what it was is, is that some awareness, and I hate that, you know, sometimes creating awareness gets overused. But I started to say to some people, and again, we're talking sometimes about some people at some, you know, at some quality places, people of merit. Hey, it's okay to go get some help. There's no shame in saying, I'm not handling things right here. Uh, I also heard from a lot of, from a lot of people in our business who had dealt with it with their kids, uh, with family members, you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, one gentleman shared a story with me about his father getting Alzheimer's and how it had affected his whole family and how he was just feeling like he, he, he was underwater constantly. Mm-hmm. And that the last thing could, that was on his mind sometimes were his greens <laughs> sure. because he had so much to deal with, you know, with a, uh, you know, with a sick parent. So, uh, the other thing that was going on, Nathan, is I started to get stories from people about staff members who they knew were having trouble, but they didn't know how to talk to them. You know, they didn't, they knew that something was going wrong with a young assistant or a mechanic or something like that. Well, what do I say? How do right. I help? You know, is there something I can do? Uh, when is, when is, uh, when is doing too much, you know, in tr- started to talk about all those things. Um, I didn't, I didn't set out to become a communication point for all this. I just was honest about my own story. And I think a lot of people said, wow, you know, Dave, the agronomist, Dave, the guy that I read in the, in the, you know, I read his blog. I, you know, I read his articles, that sort of stuff. Like he's a human. He's not just the turf robot. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) This guy has a human side and he's very open about it. If you go back, yeah. even when you were when you first started consulting, you said that you'd sit down in the office, and then all of a sudden people started to open up to you. Golf, like uh, as, uh, as you said, golf course superintendents are kind of out there on an the island a lot of times, and uh, and golf professionals as well. But but superintendents, yeah. you know, it's not easy for a superintendent to pick up the phone and call a buddy who's a not in the turf business, or even one who is, and talk about their problems because they've got their own problems, you know. So here you come in, you're kind of. Uh, you know, a, a mediator almost for their for their emotional state, and they right. feel like they can kind of open up to you. And the fact that you you know you tell them, look, I'm I'm not going to uh, tell anybody. You just and then they just continue to open up. And I think a lot of times people just need to get things off their chest. And I think maybe you were just the right person at the right time. Well, I just think in a lot of ways, uh, Nathan, there's a little bit of providence to that. You know, I I really think. You know, God, the universe, whatever brings people into your life sometimes for a real reason. And uh, a lot of times, you know, it's those voices that you can hear are good. I remember a golf course superintendent talking to me one time. His neighbor was a police officer, you know, and, and he desperately wanted to talk to his neighbor about some of the stresses he was feeling every summer, you know, when he was getting his butt kicked <laughs> right. by the heat, right? But his neighbor's a cop. Right. He goes, you know, that guy goes out every day with a pistol on his hip and he may not come home. You know, how am I going to speak to him about my greens dying? Right. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not how this works. Like men aren't always great at, at, uh, you know, at, at doing the buddy thing. I think it's gotten a lot, 
you know, we hug each other now, all that sort of stuff. Right. Right. But right. there's a certain amount of bravado that goes on. And I think golf course superintendents, they would get together and, you know, the, the stories are, you know, kind of filled with bravado. I mean, nobody would go have beers at a bar and say, man, my depression's, you know, really getting me. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. But we could share the stories about, about, you know, hot days, broken irrigation issues, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Right, right. But it's really hard to translate that to the rest of the world. Um, especially when you're talking about first responders and people, you know, air traffic controllers and people who are in very, you know, kind of high stress deals. Sure. I mean, I have, uh, you know, my wife has been a teacher for 28 years and uh, my daughter just started teaching and, you know, even teaching has become such a stressful occupation that, you know, know, and again, I mean, who do you, sometimes there are times, who do you turn to? And uh, I think like any other profession, I think if if the industries don't step in and and do something to at least address it, you're going to lose a lot of very good, talented people in those industries that are going to go somewhere else just to try to get away from the stress of it. A superintendent friend of mine in Northern California had an assistant superintendent take his own life. And he talked to me and he said, you know, what could I have done, Dave? I didn't know this was going, you know, as it happens with a lot of things, he didn't, he knew that the guy was having some issues and some stuff like that, right? Had been through a divorce, on and on. Um, it was very, very difficult on him because he felt like maybe he shouldn't have been so hardcore. You know, maybe I should have given the guy a break. Maybe I should have backed off a little bit. And we don't always get it back off in our thing, but we always don't see the signs either. And uh, so I've been I've been real big on on in some of my talking and coaching and speaking to just talk about that sort of triage bit. How do we recognize the signs of a staff member or a family member or even yourself who may be actually having a medical emergency and you just don't know it? Man, that's impacted some people. I mean that that statement right there. It just quiets a room. Everybody can think of that. Um, and then unfortunately, and again, I don't want to get dark with this, but there's the safety factor. You know, we've had a, I've had a few stories told to me about, you know, employee just kind of going off the edge, you know, losing their mind in the break room. And, <laughs> right. you know, and it's like, Jesus, it's safe at our workplace. You know, if I, right. if I let that guy go, is he going to, is he going to show up, you know, with his rifle? Horrible. Yeah. But we have to talk about that but we have to talk about it no you're right unfortunately it's just the times that that we're living in and you know we go back and think you know you and i first quote unquote met on twitter i don't know a few years ago and and uh, i started following you you started following me and i don't remember how how it went but anyway it was it was always entertaining inevitable that good back up (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And um, so when the article it, that Ron Witten wrote in Golf Digest, which I guess was September yeah. of 2019, and it was talking about, um, mental, yeah, it was last year. So it was talking about mental wellness and, and uh, sometimes, you know, specter of suicide among golf course superintendents. And I was reading mm-hmm. this article and I saw your name there first. And then I saw, you know, Casey Coff and then Jason Haynes and Mo Robinson right. and all these people that I've known on Twitter for years and had no idea that any of this was going on. I, I think that's another thing is people, especially in, in the turf industry, but also outside of turf industry have gotten very good at hiding these things. And maybe it's because, you know, they're concerned about their job. Maybe it, it looks like that, you know, they can't handle the stress and, you know, for whatever reason, but people have gotten very sure. good at, at, at hiding this. Right. Yeah. So, well, um, um, well, not to interrupt, but when Ron, when Ron called me, uh, he had, he had read something that I had written on Twitter and Casey Coff and I were going back and forth on some stuff. And Casey has a pretty similar history to mine, although he's younger. Uh, I mean, here's a guy who, you know, who's involved at the, you know, at the top. Right. And he's talking about his own issues. And Ron said, you know, I've been tasked to write an article about golf course superintendents. And it re- and I realized after reading Twitter for a while that stress and stress management and all of this is a really big deal. Uh, and then he talked to me about his friend, Stan George, you know, who was at the, at, at uh, Perry Dunes, mm-hmm. who took his own life. And, uh, 
And Ron said, you know, Dave, would you, would you kind of, would you like to be interviewed for this, first of all? And then can you introduce me to some other people that you know that might want to tell their story? Because there's a story in this. Yeah. And I mean, for me, it's easy. I just talk about it. I'm an open book. But when I had to talk to some of my friends about some of their stuff and, and say, hey, you know, Golf Digest, right? National Magazine. Right. <laughs> Ron Witten wants, to tell you, wants you to tell your story. Uh, of course, nobody, nobody had their arm twisted to do it. I mean, you can always say no. And a few people did. And I understand why. It's, and I don't look down on that. But uh, I'll tell you, that article, it did so much to bring some people out of the, you know, into the light and to bring that topic to the forefront. Uh, I do know that there was a little bit of concern on the, you know, on the side of the GCSA and everything, because, you know, they want to, hey, this is a career. We we don't want people to not become, you know, turf professionals because it's going to hurt you. Right. <laughs> you know, we made it very clear about that. And, and it's been well received. And so that group of people, uh, you know, I just did a thing for the British Columbia Superintendents Association via Zoom with those people that you just mentioned. Uh, as a roundtable, and it was phenomenal. We had great questions coming in. We had about 150 people watching, and uh, the feedback was amazing. And that continues. We're going to also do the same thing for the golf industry show, although it's virtual this year. Right. Same group of people, and we're adding a psychologist to that so that she can give some perspective on how to handle it. You know, on a on a more professional way. Because again. I'm an agronomist. I'm not a psychologist. Right. So I have to be very careful in the advising thing. You know, I can advise you about how to get your greens back on their feet, but I'm not really the guy to be advising you about how to, you know, change your suicidal ideation. Right? Sure. No. You know, and, that's, and that's a bigger job. And and I think yeah. that's, that's why, you know, I kind of, I refer to you as a, an advocate because, you know, you're the yeah. person who's been there, done that, talked to numerous people who've kind of been through the same situation and are, are struggling with, you know, the stress of a job or, or what have you. And, and I think it's just as important sure. to have people to help bring it to light as it is to have people to help deal with it. And not just golf. I mean, you think about 2020 in general and, uh, you know, oh, the, yeah. the year yeah. that oh, you know, yeah. we wish history could forget. Yeah. <laughs> Last September when Ron interviewed me for that or last whatever it was August when we had the interview and when the thing, we could have never guessed that, you know, 2020 was going to turn out how it was going to turn out. Oh, it's, I mean, it's, it's horrible with between, yeah. between just the pandemic itself. You just set aside the, the, the deaths related to the pandemic and you just talk about the issues that people are dealing with who are locked down, who've lost jobs, their kids maybe aren't back in school yet. That's a whole, that's a four or five episode podcast of kids, you know, what, what they're missing out by trying to, to telecommute. And, uh, but for our purposes to have all these people suddenly dealing with some of the same issues that you've had superintendents talk to you about for 20 years and how that, you know, now more and more people are dealing with it. I wonder how many people are dealing with it and don't even realize that they're dealing with it. I mean, what, what do you think? Oh no, I, I didn't realize Nathan. I, I had no idea that what I was dealing with was depression, you know, and anxiety and that, you know, I mean, listen, I'm not a very touchy feely necessarily i wasn't raised to be you know super touchy feely or whatever you know this isn't a right you know this isn't a snowflake kind of deal i wouldn't wish some of the stuff that i've been through between my ears on my worst enemy really um but i've learned that that uh that there are tons of people like myself because now think about this i was 25 when you know, my first, again, I, you know, I had my first thing when I was about 19 and then I was 25 when the pressure really hit me. Uh, and I went through, you know, some, some really dark days where I just didn't want to get out of bed. Nothing, you know, nothing seemed like it was worthwhile. Everybody pissed me off. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. No, believe me. I didn't realize that was, yeah, I, I didn't realize that was depression. You know, I just thought I was becoming curmudgeonly 20 something (laughs) you were ahead of your time how dangerous that could be if let to go you know and i think that's the thing that that a lot of people are starting to realize is it's like hey i don't have to feel bad you know and that doesn't necessarily mean that i have to go take you know take a bunch of pills and 
it doesn't also it also doesn't mean that you have to sit and stare at a wall and meditate you, you know there's right. a lot of there's a lot of ways through it i mean one superintendent told me that the simple act of getting off his golf cart and just going and walking at least nine holes every morning changed his life. It's funny you mentioned that. When I interviewed uh, Darren Davis, when he was the president of the GCSAA, he said that's one of the things that he tries to do every day. He walks the golf course. And he said not only does yeah. it kind of help him connect yeah. him better with things that are going on, it just helps him personally. Because we were talking about that, you know, workplace stress and, and that type of thing. And he said that, you know, just getting out and walking the golf course, making myself walk the golf course was one of the best things he could do. There's a, there's a type you know, of, of person. And I, and I want to include, um, women in this too, because I, I, I now have met some really great turf managers, uh, both in golf and also like in major league sports, uh, Nicole Sherry, who's with the, uh, Baltimore Orioles, you know, organization. This is, she's as tough a person as I've ever met. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, it's a type A thing, right? We're, we're these type A people. We're independent. We're fierce. Uh, we're ready for whatever's going to come at us. We didn't get in this business because, you know, we like spreadsheets, right? <laughs> right. You know, we have to do them. But there is, a, there is a, a moxie, a mojo that comes from the job. And on a good day, it's as good as it gets. And I think every, every superintendent and every turf grass professional, uh, every uh, – you know, sports turf person or whatever will tell you that their good days, they're phenomenal. Nothing beats it. But when, when it goes wrong, it, it can knock the heck out of you. Sure. <laughs> and, oh, no, and type A people don't always like to be knocked around. You know, they want to fight back. They want to, you know, the adrenaline kicks on and it's like, hey, I'm not going to let this fight or flight routine right there can really, it can do some damage. Yeah, and oftentimes it's the fight is the initial reaction versus the flight. And, and I think there Absolutely. are times when you need to kind of sit back and take stock in that situation before you react. Yeah. All right, Dave, we've got a quick commercial break. So I want to tease this. Don't, don't answer just yet, but I want you to think about holidays are coming up. You know, what kind of tips maybe to kind of deal with stress and, and that type of thing. And we'll go over that with Dave Wilbur when we come back right after this. In 2013, the U.S. government began shutting down programs to cut costs. But closing one secret Department of Defense program in America's biggest city set loose one of America's darkest secrets. Now the CIA, DOD, and foreign agents are scouring New York City, racing against each other to find one man who could have all the answers 60 years after his death. Vincent Vino, a thriller by Nathan Grace. Available now in print and ebook from Moonbay Media. Malakalikimaka is a thing to say on a bright Hawaiian Christmas day. That's the island greeting that we send to you From the land where palm trees sway Here we know that Christmas will be green and bright The sun to shine by day and all the stars at night Malakilikimaka is a wise way to say Merry Christmas to you. Bing Crosby, that's one of my favorite Christmas songs of maybe all time. I, I, I had a lot of classic Christmas songs that I put on the iPod, and when the kids were little, we would always listen to that when they opened gifts and kind of get them started young. Back here with Dave Wilbur. Hey, Dave, um, Christmas and New Year's. I mean, it's hard to believe that oh, 2020 yeah. is almost finally over. I know a lot of people are looking forward to 2021 and putting this year in the rearview mirror for a number of reasons. But during the holidays, there are a lot of people who... Maybe they live alone, maybe they, they're uh, widowed or 
Maybe they just lost a loved one, or maybe sometimes it's just the the pressure of the holiday it just kind of sits in and, and can can be a little more than people sometimes want to, uh, or at least want to admit or want to take on. And I thought we would wrap up the podcast not with uh, doom and gloom, because you know again that's not the point of this podcast. And so I think everybody sure. listening here has has learned a lot from from your insight. But I thought maybe it would be good if you had three or four or five points. If somebody's kind of dealing with these issues, things that they could do to, to help sure. deal with stress on their own. Sure. Absolutely. Well, I mean, and again, um, a lot of this comes from my own life. It comes from the lives of friends and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, Nathan, not again, I, I hear you where you're going with this, but the first thing that I want to say is that, you know, uh, if you truly feel that, you know, that, uh, that you're not in control of yourself or you're dangerous to yourself, you know, then that's when you call 911. That's when you get some help, you know, right away. Right. Sure. So that's, you know, let's get that out of the way. Right. But as far as, as far as all the rest of this goes, and again, 2020 being, you know, so different in every way right. and, and forcing a lot of people to be in isolation. The thing that I keep, that I keep seeing and I keep hearing from people is that they really have to invent ways to connect. Um, we talked about Twitter, you know, we're, a lot of us are, you know, that's our, that's become our community. Um, and I don't see it as a, uh, yes, I'd love to be hanging out with those people face to face, but I've always had to deal with friends from all over the world, you know, in the electronic sense. Um, what I have to be careful with me is when I withdraw from that. And I think sometimes you have to press in. It's like staring into the skid, you know, and get, get yourself, um, even if it's a small group of people that get on zoom every once in a while and just, just laugh for a minute. I know about a group of superintendents that do a happy hour once a week. Yeah. They just, they just have a beer together and, uh, because they haven't been able to go to super, you know, superintendents meetings and they haven't really been able to go hang out at the brew, you know, the brew pub and stuff in, in Colorado you know, craft beer is a big thing. And we all used to get together, um, you know, on a pretty regular basis, not just to drink, but to talk about grass, <laughs> you know, talk about right. our families. So, so pressing in and not isolating is a big deal. Using the electronic tools, you know, is a big deal. Uh, I think the other thing that really, that I continually have to tell people is, Hey, it's okay to do something for yourself to make yourself feel good. As long as it's not a destructive behavior, right? Right. I'm certainly not saying go buy the BMW if you know you don't have you don't have <laughs> the money or that you know that kind of manic behavior, right? But there's nothing wrong with with uh, you know I I like gaming. I I'm I've always been a big gamer, computer gamer, board gamer. Uh, I'm not embarrassed to say that I loved playing Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid. You know that's me, and I embrace that. I want to that stuff makes me smile. And, uh, I'm always asking people, you know, like, what, you know, what do you like? What do you do that, that makes you smile? And, and, and if, and, and then if the answer comes out, it's like, well, why aren't you doing it? Right. You know, well, I suck at it. You know, whatever. <laughs> Guy tells me one time that he really likes to paint, but he's horrible. He doesn't even, you know, the paintings he does, it's like, you couldn't even tell anybody what it is. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, it's so abstract. And I'm like, yeah, but isn't the color cool? Isn't the, the, he's like, yeah, I put on some music and I just, I just make stuff on, you know, I just paint. Well, maybe heck, that's, a, that's a good thing. I mean, maybe abstract is this thing. I, you know, I, I have it's the just, same thing. You know, I like that side of your brain. That's right. I like to go out and, uh, and walk, you know, take the dog sometimes or yeah. sometimes go on my own. And I've found that when I get busy, I'll look back and it's been a week, 10 days since I just went for a walk and go hook the right. dog up, just go walk around the neighborhood for an hour. And you feel so much better. You just kind of free because your body's moving. I put in the headphones and listen to classical music or a podcast. And, and it's just, it really kind of frees up your mind for an hour and it makes you feel so much better when you get back. It's really strange how that works. Or go out in the driveway and shoot basketball with my sons or, or what have you. Sure. But I think physical activity, especially yeah. for people who are kind of forced into isolation or lockdown, physical activity is so big, so such a huge part yeah, of overcoming. Is really, it's, a, it's a really big thing. And it, and it doesn't have to be, you know, a big scripted thing. I mean, for a lot of people, they can't go to the gym every day or whatever, you know, but 
but to do something physical every day, you know, is a good thing. I think the other thing that, that I've talked to some people about that's really helped them is, you know, the act of helping others in some way, whatever that way may be, it could be very small, you know, just doing something, just doing something cool. And, uh, uh, it can make a huge difference. I, I, I'm thinking of, you know, it just snowed here last night and, uh, you know, I got out there and, and, uh, watched people helping each other, you know, to get the snow clear. Right. Right? Right. Simple, right? It's a simple thing. And you say, well, that feels good. You know, I helped somebody. There's no end of need right now in 2020. Sure. And, and it doesn't have to be financial. You know, it doesn't have to be about giving money or whatever. I mean, your time, uh, just a kind word, you know, any of those kinds of things, uh, there's no shortage of, uh, of places and ways that you can go and there's nothing wrong again, no shame in in feeling better by helping others feel better. It's a huge thing. And, and maybe you have a neighbor or maybe you have a coworker or someone who uh, lives alone or, um, maybe yeah. recently, uh, divorced or, widowed or lost someone and you know that person might be struggling during the holidays pick up the phone and call and check on them just let them know that somebody's thinking about them yeah i know when i was uh when i was really going through it in my dark times you know i I, and and this is something to realize is that when you do that with somebody you may not get a lot back from them at first you know hey how's it going Eh, fine you know that kind of thing right right but then later they go wow that was really cool somebody called me and, uh, somebody cares and they go to bed that night thinking, wow, they were thinking about me. That's pretty cool. So you may not get a, a, a perfect feedback from those kinds of things. Um, right away. You know, there was a part of me that didn't want to, I don't want to talk to people. Don't call me. Don't call me on the phone. You know? And one friend just kept calling until I finally picked up, you know, right. I was like, what's wrong with you? Oh, I don't want to talk to anybody. Well, guess what? I want to talk to you. <laughs> right. I need to talk to you. So, and then later I went, oh man, it's nice that somebody cares. But sure. in the moment, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> Look, he, he, so I think there's a lot to that. Human, yeah. human beings naturally want to be with other human beings. Now, sure. There are people who, you know, like a little more solitude or maybe they're introverted it, obviously that that's the case, but for the most part, we are communal beings and we, we, we like to be around other people and you need to interact. You know, one of the strange things that I see, everybody's wearing a mask. And so normally, oh, yeah. you know, you smile yeah. at people and Hey, how are you doing? You pass them by, you know, Hey, you smile and you can't tell if people are smiling. And, and that's one of, the, one of the crazy things because, you know, I'll look at somebody and I'll kind of smile and say hello. They can't tell I'm smiling. I don't even think about it until yeah. I walk past. I'm like, why did they look? Oh, they couldn't even tell I was, you know. And so it, it's become yeah. this very strange dynamic and way for somebody to come out with a clear mask so you can see people smiling on the other side of it. Well, and I didn't realize, I you know, uh, I guess at my ripe old age of 55, I've lost a little bit of hearing, Nathan. You know, probably from some time on dozers and sure around golf course equipment and stuff when we didn't take as good a care. And I rely on a little bit of lip reading now. <laughs> I didn't realize it, you know, and that's a good like, point. Uh, what'd you just say? <laughs> you know, I have to get close to people, but we're not supposed to get close to people so I can hear and you know, that kind of stuff. But I think the, uh, you know, the, the idea that we, uh, you know, that we don't have to be alone, uh, is such a, you know, is such a big deal. And, I'm an introvert. Uh, I mean, I, I'm one of those people that they call an ambivert. You know, I, I need to basically what it is, is I need to go to the party, but afterwards I need to go home and recharge right. my batteries for right. myself. And if I don't handle that correctly, you know, it can kind of, it can kind of get spun out of control. But, uh, but, you know, there's another part to all that too, which is, and this is the last bit that I was going to mention is, is there is a spiritual side to all this. And I don't want to get religious. Everybody has their own way. But uh, this is a really great time to consider what your spiritual bend is and to get some spiritual food, if you will. You know, whether, whether, that, you know, whether, whether that's Bible study online or, you know, worship music or, or 
you know, meditation and prayer, all those sorts of things. And I, and I continue to see people who are embracing this time, you know, to look at their spiritual bit has been really good for them. I know it's been good for me. I've had some time on my hands because I'm not riding the airplanes like I used to, to, uh, you know, to contemplate my, my place in the universe, so to speak, my relationship with, uh, you know, with the higher power. It's done wonders for me, actually, you know, and I, I, and I've heard that from a lot of people, you know, they've, they've re they've rediscovered their spiritual side through all this. Uh, I agree 100%. In fact, we, at our church, we joked back early on in the pandemic when they weren't letting you go to church, uh, but you could go to all the big box stores and, and everything else. And we joked that we yeah. were going to start having church yeah. Sunday morning at the lawn and garden department at Walmart because there was right. there were no restrictions on that. Some churches in Southern California, they just said, okay, fine, we're just going to all show up at the beach about the same time, you know, and we'll stay away from each other and we'll put the PA system up and we'll, you know, try right. to have a service. Yeah. Uh, I respect that. I think that's, it's like, Hey, we, you know, we have to do something. People depend on that getting together kind of thing. Uh, I have a friend who's a very good worship musician, uh, one of the very best. And, you know, he's been producing a lot of stuff in his home studio that he's been sending out everywhere just so that people can, uh, you know, can get that musical lift. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it's been great. You know, it's been great for him. Can you imagine if this pandemic had hit, 10 years earlier or 20 years earlier, how different, I mean, without the, without the internet and the social media and the zoom and the Skype and, and everything else, I mean, how different things would be right now. And I, and I don't know, well, I, I'd like to yeah. think that they would be worse, but I don't know, maybe, maybe in some respects, it, it maybe not, but it just, it would be so different if people didn't have these ways to be able to telecommute. And, and I, I just, it's mind boggling sure. just to think how different things were five or 10 years ago. Well, out of difficulty comes opportunity, you know, and, uh, I know Nathan, this will change, uh, you know, and I, I just really have the belief that we're going to get past all this from a being sick standpoint and from an economic standpoint and all that. Right. But I've had to really look and say, okay, you know, I'm getting a little bit older. I don't think I can be on the road 200 days a year anymore. You know, um, I don't know that I want to do that. And I've, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot of good consulting work done, you know, via webcam <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, FaceTime and all that sort of thing. And it's like, yeah, maybe we have to think about how we do life a little bit. And that's not a bad thing. I'm embracing it actually. My credo is I want to be out on the ground. I want to be out on the turf. I want to have my feet in the grass, you know? Right. But there's a cost to that financial cost, emotional cost. And I'm really going to consider how I, you know, how I put things back together as the world normalizes. I, I think the ability to embrace that change too is, is uh, to a varying degree is how people will be able to come out on the other side of it. I mean, I'm, I've got a few projects ongoing right now and even though I try to visit them once every seven to 10 days, we still have, I'll get a FaceTime call or I'll get pictures from the project superintendent. Yeah. Hey, how's this looking? Does this look good? And he'll walk around FaceTime and we'll look at things and we'll make some adjustments and tweak yeah. a few things. Now there are some things that you can't see on the screen and you have to look at it in, in real time. But as far as mm -hmm. sod lines and things like that, you know, we can do that so they don't have to oh, wait, right. wait until yeah, I get down there the next time. And it, it really, if you embrace the technology and don't just, you know, you don't run scared from it and say, well, that's not the way I've always done it. You know, it, you need to embrace it and, and at least incorporate it into the way you do things. Well, I think when I built my consulting model and what I had seen, you know, in the 1990s, right, you know, was, I mean, it, you couldn't just send a digital photo to somebody or fire up FaceTime or have a webcam conversation. Right. right. So when a golf course superintendent called and said, hey, my grass is turning yellow. Well, one person's version of yellow is different than another person's. <laughs> right. And, and so you're trying to kind of navigate that conversation and that whole, you know, should I, or shouldn't I get on that red eye and go to Chicago <laughs> just to see this yellow grass. Right. And of course, a few times I did that and show up and it's like, well, that's not that bad. What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> or by the time I got there, they figured out what happened. So I built my consulting model in the nineties, you know, be there, be on the ground, travel, do all that sort of stuff. But now we have a different, you know, I can actually log into one of my clients, um, soul temperature, you know, and, uh, and salinity meters mm -hmm. 
and look at the data right here. That's great. Does he need me on that airplane? Right. Uh, maybe not as much. Maybe maybe we do it, you know, once a year instead of four times a year. You know that kind of. Thing. You know, I'm I'm and, one of those weird people who actually misses flying because I actually enjoy commercial air travel. Um, I don't know why. I also enjoyed the. Uh, I like the movie Up in the Air, but uh, I don't know if you've seen that right. with uh, George Clooney. I have. I have. Uh, maybe not yeah. to that extent, but yeah. I, you know, I I enjoy the experience. I don't mind going through the security and and uh, you know getting on the planes and flying. Around. And I just for whatever reason, ever since I was a little boy, I've always been fascinated by airplanes. So I, I don't mind it, and and I do miss it. Alan McCurrick told me a long time ago. Uh, that if you don't make fun out of it and John Scott said the same thing to me, if you don't make fun out of travel, you know, if you don't make it an adventure, uh, it'll, it'll break you, right. you know? So I, so I took that to heart and I'm like, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to find the, I'm going to find the out of way cool restaurant here. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to see what I like about this city, that city, this airport, that airport, where's the cool, you know, where's the cool spot to hang out. Right. I was made it, made it a game you know, a, a, a Carmen San Diego type game. And, and then, you know, I didn't mind it so much. I think for me, always the hardest thing was trying to get home. You know, you're done working. You've done all of it. You know, it's time to get home. Right. And I'm looking at, you know, 10 hours of travel to, to get, you know, to finally get to my own bed. And, uh, I just wish I could click my heels three times and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like Dorothy and just, okay, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. Bang, I'm home, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it, at least you were flying in and out of Denver. Uh, you, when you fly in and out of Jackson, Mississippi, because it's a smaller market. I was going to say. I mean, yeah. I, have, I have to either go to Atlanta or Dallas or Chicago, sometimes to Charlotte. I mean, it, sure. you, you can't go. There is no direct I did a, to anywhere. <laughs> I did a bunch of my flying out of Sacramento because that's where I lived. But really, like to go to Asia and stuff like that, you got to go to San Francisco. So I had this whole, you know two hour fight down into the city to get, you know, then to get on a plane right. or sometimes I had to fly from Sacramento to LA and, and get on a plane in LA and go and, and, you know, Hey, sometimes it doesn't work out. <laughs> right. That, sometimes your package doesn't come with you. That's, that's yeah. when 10 years ago you're on, you're sitting in the airport and you're thinking, I wish someone would invent FaceTime. Right. Right. But anyway, I'm, you know, I'm with you. I, I, there's, there's good and bad about air travel. I always enjoyed some of the people I met, you know, and some of the things I, I got to see, but, uh, at the same time, you know, the, the physical cost sometimes can be pretty steep. Right. You know, here, here we are again, as we record this word, 10 days or some change from Christmas. So by the time this publishes and people hear it, this will be our Christmas Eve episode. So Dave, I really want to thank you for being here. I want to thank everyone for listening, but I really want to thank you for carving out some time to, to from your schedule to be here and share your insight. Oh, it's my pleasure. My great pleasure. Any, anytime I get to talk about grass, mental health, and myself, I'm, <laughs> I'm in my zone. <laughs> well, we'll have to do it again for sure. Everyone out there, I want you to be sure yeah, to follow. Yeah, yeah, no, go ahead. I just want to throw a, a quick thing out. Um, I've got a list of places I want to see, you know, that I keep golf courses. I'm talking about golf for a second. Mm -hmm. And uh, so many people have talked to me about Copper Mill. Oh, yeah. And I haven't been, I haven't been near Baton Rouge. And I really want to, I really want to get to see that someday it's yeah, on you know, my list. Copper sure. Mill is a really fun golf course and, you know, not unlike other golf courses of its era. And when I say era, I mean, it was opened in 2004, I think it was. I have to go back here. Yeah. Hang on. Hang on a second. Yeah. I've actually got on the wall behind me, you know, it won Golf Digest Best New Public Course in America of yeah. the year. And I've oh, actually, That's I've got it framed yeah. behind me, but I can't see from here what the year it was i think it was 2004 like a lot of other golf courses from that time you know it's gone through some ownership changes talked uh -huh. to someone there a couple of months ago the property owners association took it over a year or so ago uh they're really getting okay. things kind of turned back around from an agronomic standpoint because it had just you know changed hands so many times but like everybody else they've been really really busy this year sure so sure. we're we're actually talking um 
about going and helping them with a couple of issues on the, on the with a couple of lakes and things and uh, but you know it's just the bones of that golf course it's such a fun golf course you know six par three six par fours and six par five so you still have a par 72 and uh it, it's just a lot of fun i'm glad they're getting it back whipped back into shape and I, I need to get back down there and see it so the next time you're in the new orleans baton rouge houston area we'll uh we'll make right. it work out we'll meet up and, and go play i want to go yeah i was i was hoping i'd get to see some of your stuff with you that's that's a real treat for me. You know, oh, I yeah. To see the architect. No, that, the architect. I love that. Well, that'll, that'll yeah. be a lot of fun. We'll pencil that in sometime, and we'll, we'll make that happen. So for, for those of you listening, be sure to follow Dave on Twitter at TurfGrassZealot. And for those of you who went to public school like I did, that's Z-E-A-L-O-T. Uh, sure to listen to his <laughs> podcast and, and read his blog at TurfNet.com. Or, you know, maybe if you want to get a little more personal, shoot him an email at DaveWilbur at Yahoo.com. And that is W-I-L-B. Don't forget to click on the subscribe button while you're here and subscribe to this podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lipouts Podcast, and you can follow me on Twitter at Lipouts. For any information on this episode and past episodes, you can always go to our website at lipoutspodcast.com. So for Dave Wilbur and Landon Petty, I'm Nathan Crace wishing you a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and saying so long to 2020. We'll see you in 2021 the next time we tee it up on the Lipouts Podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Watermark Golf Media. All rights reserved.